band of Christian soldiers fighting Satan every day. We're standing up for Jesus while we're kneeling down to pray. If his precious blood has cleansed you and washed away your sin, that makes you a member of the blood-washed band. Praise God, I'm a member of the blood-washed band. I've been washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. I was bound by chains of sin till one day the Master came and made me a member of the blood-washed band. God's children are advancing, marching till we reach the goal. For the battle's almost over, we'll soon be going home. I can hear the sound of angels as the saints go marching in, singing praise to the captain of the blood-washed band. Praise God, I'm a member of the blood-washed band. I've been washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. I was bound by chains of sin till one day. chains of sin till one day the master came and made me a member of the blood-washed band i was bound by chains of sin till one day the master came and made me a member of the blood-washed band Well, amen. I hope you're part of the blood wash band. Amen. Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's get things kick started. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to go to a very familiar passage to get things going. And uh, we're going to start with chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Now, we know verses 8 through 9 pretty well. We're going to kind of stretch it a little bit and go into verse 10 <clears throat> just to get things moving along here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. All right, let's take a moment to read that together. You read it silently, I'll read it aloud. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Again, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now we are very familiar, I would imagine, with that particular passage. If not, well, you will get familiar with it along the way in your Christian life, because the truth is, is that it lays a very solid foundation for our salvation. Our, the salvation that we have is by grace through faith. And in this particular case, he says, For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Boy, I tell you what, I don't know about you, but the older I get and the more I realize and recognize and understand about myself and the Word of God, the more I'm glad and thankful that it's not of myself. Boy, I tell you, I'm glad about that. 
But instead, the Bible says, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He says, boy, it's a gift, and it's something you simply receive, and it's not of works. Why? If it were of works, then what? We would boast. We would have something to say, boy, did I do it right. He says, no, that's not how it works at all. But then he goes on to talk about, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, this is the passage often that we kind of neglect. We don't speak much about verse 10. But before we get there, let, let me just say this. As you look at the religions of the world, there really are only two religions. And someone says, boy, you're really off your rocker. There's all kind of religions. Not really. When you boil it all down, it either comes to, there's one of two faiths, one of two religions. Either it's by grace through faith or it's by works. Now listen, I, you can call whatever you want to call that religion, it, either that religion is trusting and solely depending on Jesus Christ or it's depending on some element of works to get them to heaven. So really when it's said and done, you are either trusting Christ or you are trusting in your works. It's either the religion of grace through faith or it's the religion of personal effort or, or work. And so we complicate matters often, don't we? We make it very difficult. How come there's so many religions? There really aren't that many religions. There are only two. Either you're trusting Christ alone or you are trusting in some element of works. And if you're trusting in your own personal effort or your own works, then my friend, you're missing the boat and you're going to miss heaven as well. Because salvation, the Bible says, is by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with your work, my work, or anybody's other than Jesus Christ. And if it did, we could say, boy, I'm pretty good. But there's nothing good about us outside of him. But once we've come to the place where we know and recognize Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says that, well, there's more to the story. It seems that in some cases, people are just glad to be saved. I mean, they're just happy that they're on their way to heaven. <clears throat> but may I say that God never intended that we simply get a ticket on the train leading to glory. That God intended us to do something with that salvation. And in this particular case, it says that he, we are his workmanship. Remember, he began a good work in us and will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Well, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now the works are important. Now they come into play. They have no part in our salvation, but they definitely have a part in our sanctification and our service to the Master. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I'll tell you, God, long before you were ever created or I was ever born, he had already outlined what I ought to be doing for him. He had before ordained that I should walk in good works, and those good works are outlined and defined in the word of God. How in the world would you know what God expects if he didn't leave a Bible? 
Jesus Christ walked on this earth and he did his best to try to influence and affect people while he was here. But may I say, Jesus isn't on earth anymore and God himself is no longer with us in person. He leaves his word behind and his spirit of God to drive home those truths. And the fact is, is that the word of God is what convicts us and the word of God is what changes us. And the reality is, is that you and I have a work to do and it is defined and clarified in the scriptures, the word of God. But whether we're dealing with our salvation or whether we're dealing with our service, it's really... A matter of the heart. Look, if you would, in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Of course, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome, and he makes this statement. He says, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. Notice ye were. Past tense. Ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. So what he's saying is, is that there came a time in your life when you received the gospel of Jesus Christ You didn't just acknowledge it as truth. You didn't just say, well, you know what? I got to believe that's got some valid. That's pretty valid. That makes a lot of sense. No, you believed from the heart. There was a heart assent. There was a heart understanding. The heart heart was involved in this process. You took what was in your head, the truth that you had heard, the truth that you had, uh, had been given, and you took it and you hid it in your heart. You took it from head to heart. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we see salvation. And may I say salvation is a matter of the heart. We noted that in Romans 6, 17. But notice service is also a matter of the heart. In Ephesians 6, 6. The apostle, again, writing it to the church at Ephesus, says, not with eye service as men pleasers. We could park there all day, couldn't we? How much is done to please mankind? How much is done to please mortal man? But not, he says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God. Watch this. From the heart. You know you can do the will of God in essence, and I'm talking about the external aspect of it, without your heart. You know you can come to church without the heart. You can read your Bible without the heart. You can can dress right and act right and talk right and look right and go the right places and do the right things and not have your heart in it. But see, not only is our salvation a heart issue, but so is our service. It's a heart issue too. It's all about the heart. 
Now I want to take a few moments tonight and I want to highlight a few biblical accounts and I want to note those that are involved. And along the way, I want to ask just a few questions. And so let's have a word of prayer. And we're going to look at a couple of characters and circumstances in the Bible. And we're going to ask just a couple of basic questions. And let's just see how it pans out tonight. Father, we come to you. We thank you. And we praise you for this opportunity to gather tonight. We're asking that you'll take these next few moments and impress upon our minds, our hearts, our lives, the need to to truly have a, a genuine, real faith. To live our lives in a way that expresses that heart attitude. Lord, we need you and we love you. We pray for your, just your spirit to work in our lives today now. We'll give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Take your Bible, look over the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. It shouldn't be too hard to find. I mean, it's a pretty big book way back there. Actually, it's pretty small, actually. That's true. That one's not very big. Ezekiel, the one before it's pretty big. You find Ezekiel, go to the right, and you'll find Daniel. He's kind of hiding out there. Daniel, let's look at chapter 3, please. Now, this account's going to be rather familiar as well. But but I I want to look at the, the account, and I want to consider the characters or the ones involved in it and ask just a couple questions. So Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits. Now, in general, and again, some debate, it can vary somewhat, but a cubit's about 18 inches. Some have said it could be upwards of 22 inches. Depends on who you read, who you follow. But as a general rule, you're pretty safe to go with 18 inches, a foot and a half for a cubit. So you can do the math if you like to figure out how big or tall this particular uh, image is. I mean, if it's three score cubits and it's a foot and a half, that makes it 90 feet tall. Pretty good size. Anyway, He goes on to say, the breadth of it six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So he sets up this this image of gold. The implications that this image, it seems like it it represents him, okay? It, It appears that it might, I don't know if they tried to carve his face out in it or not. I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I mean, that would make sense to me. I mean, if I'm the king and you're going to make a big carving 90 feet tall and ultimately ask people to bow down to it and I believe that I deserve that kind of, uh, of praise, then probably I'd put, you know, this beautiful face on it. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> so anyway, let's move on. Verses 4 through 6. We jump ahead a little bit. Then a herald crying aloud, to you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages. Again, remember now, this Babylonian nation is is a world leader here. And as a result of that, there's going to be different languages, there's going to be different nations that fall under their authority. 
Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Wow. That's pretty severe, isn't it? You are going to bow down to this particular idol, this, this idol of gold, if you will. You're going to fall down and worship. Or you're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. <clears throat> pretty simple, right? Look at verses 14 now. Starting in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Of course, these three, being Hebrew children, those that were taken in the captivity, would not bow down. That was an offense to their faith. It was an offense to their God. They would bow before none other than God himself. And so Nebuchadnezzar asked them, will you not do that? You won't bow before my gods or my idol, my image? He goes on in verse 15. Now if ye be ready that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackcloth, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made? Well, some of our young people would say, well, glory. That's good news. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now, can I just say this? If right now there was a burning, fiery furnace, and it was behind me, and about... Well, it'll take about seven or eight of you to get me in there. But anyway, you guys decide to throw me in there. How many of you think God would deliver me out of that? <laughs> Come on. Let's not get too hard on old Nebuchadnezzar here. I don't think he saw that happen before. And you know what? You ain't seen it happen either. That old pagan, he didn't even believe God was able. Uh, you know what? He just knew what he knew. And the truth is, we know what we know. Think about how many times God answers a prayer of ours and we're surprised. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> That's just, I think about stuff like that sometimes. Notice now, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We don't have to take a lot of time to think about it or pray over it. We don't have to sit there and put our minds together and come up with an answer. We got, this is a simple one. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was 
want to be heeded. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. It's getting real, right? I mean, these three fellas now are facing a decision. Now, I have a question for each of us. Here's the question. Do you believe their faith was real? I'm just kind of curious. Do you believe their faith was real? Did you see the way they responded to Nebuchadnezzar? Do you realize that, that there's nobody there to rescue them or to protect them from the fiery furnace, at least humanly speaking? I mean, do you believe their faith was real? That's a great question, isn't it? Now, my next question is this. How real? I want that to think. I want you to think about that and let it sink in for a minute. Uh, To me, that's a great question. Do you believe their faith was real? And we say, well, yeah. Well, how real? Let's say a scale of one to ten real. How real do you think their faith was? I don't know. It's leaning toward the ten mark, ain't it? Seems like it to me. I mean, they're willing to go into that fiery furnace for what they believe. They're willing to say, you know what? I'm not bowing down to you or that idol. I'm going to go. I'm willing to go into that fiery furnace before I do that, before I compromise my faith, before I give in to you. I'll burn in that fire. Seems to me that faith's pretty real. Take your Bible, would you? Look over at Daniel again, chapter 6. <clears throat> chapter 6. Notice what it says in chapter three, uh, excuse me, chapter six, verse one. We're going to consider another character as well as another circumstance or situation. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom a hundred and twenty princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. I really like verse two. I hadn't anticipated reading it, but let's read it. And over these three presidents. of whom Daniel was first. That the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. I like that Daniel was first, don't you? I like that. Well, I'll tell you what, Daniel had a good reputation with the king. Daniel, I mean, we're talking about the king, King Darius. We're not talking about the king of Israel here. See, Daniel was a good employee, Daniel did his job well. Daniel had character. And Daniel did what he was supposed to do. It didn't matter whether or not his his boss was a a heathen. It didn't matter whether his boss was a Christian. He was going to honor God with his life and the way he lived. I like that about Daniel. He was the same no matter where he was. Whether he was in Israel, whether he was in Persia, whether he was in Babylon, it don't matter where Daniel is. Daniel's just going to be a servant of God. I like that. Verse 3 and 4, then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes. I like it. Why, Daniel? Why was he preferred? Because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Oh boy, was he ever first. Then the presidents 
and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. What it's saying is they're trying to figure out a way to trip him up. If we can look at his work ethic, if we can find something he's doing unethical or immoral, we're going to nail him. We're going to get him out of here. They couldn't find anything. Nothing. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Now that's pretty good testimony, isn't it? Wouldn't that be something to be said of us? Notice verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. (laughs) They're really setting up the old king. He loves Daniel. He likes Daniel a lot too, but he loves him. And now they're coming up with this decree because they know something about Daniel. They're going to answer the question we're going to ask in just a moment. Notice notice what they go on to do in verse 8. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Once it was signed, he couldn't go back on it. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Verse 13. Then answered they and said before the king, that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Man, I mean, he went through every avenue, every process he could possibly think. He talked to every lawyer he could get his hands on, seeking a means by which to escape or to get out of fulfilling this decree. But he couldn't find a way out. You ever said something or did something later you wished you wouldn't have? You couldn't get out of it because you had to keep your word? You say, well, if that came to that, I just wouldn't keep my word. It's kind of crazy to think that a pagan king would be more ethical than a Christian. It's kind of crazy to even think about it, isn't it? It's not I'd bring that up. He goes on to say, verse 15, Then these men assembled to the king. Of course they did. Said unto the king, Know, king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king established may be changed. (laughs) We hate his guts. And you ain't getting out of this one, king, because all we care about is he's out. It's all that matters to us. Then the king commanded the that they brought Daniel. You know what they're going to do to him? They're going to cast him into a den of lions. I mean, here's this decree. You can't bow down. You, you can't pray to any other God. You can't pray to anybody but 
the king. You do that, and I'm telling you, you're going to end up in a lion's den. Question. Do you believe Daniel's faith was real? Do you believe his faith was real? Let, let, Let me ask you a question. How real? Scale one to ten. Where, where, kind of where are you leaning on that? How, how real? Scale one to ten. You, I'm kind of getting the feeling that it might be kind of leaning toward that ten mark. I mean, he's willing to go to a lion's den. He's willing to put his hands, his trust in the hands of, a, of, of an all-righteous God. He's willing to say, I'm not going to go ahead and cease from praying to my God. I'm not going to close my window. I'm not going to do anything different than I've done before because what I'm doing is right and no one's going to tell me I can't do it because God gives me the authority to pray and God gives me the right to say what I say and do what I do. I'm going to continue to face Jerusalem. I'm going to continue to pray just like I've always done. No matter what the price. I don't see Daniel complaining. I just see Daniel trusting. Do you believe his faith was real? <laughs> How real? Now look over at the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts, chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 1. We're just going to read through verse 4. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church. Now, his death. If we would take the time to go back a chapter, we're going to find that Stephen was ultimately martyred. Stephen gave his life for his faith. Stephen was stoned to death by the council. And now we find Paul the apostle here consenting unto his death, agreeing with the council, in all, I mean supporting it wholeheartedly. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere. Preaching the word. And think about this for a minute. Here they are now. These are new believers. These aren't seasoned veterans. These aren't people that have probably been saved very long at all as a whole. The church of Jerusalem is growing by leaps and bounds. We're talking just a matter of a few short years. We're talking about a period of time that isn't very awfully long at all. And people are being saved throughout that whole time. Therefore, there are some very young Christians and there are new Christians. There aren't a lot of seasoned veterans. And yet the persecution comes. Why? Because they believe in the resurrected Christ. And the Judaizers don't appreciate it, nor do they like it at all. 
And the Romans don't want the trouble, so they're willing to do what it takes to eliminate the problem as well. And so they're getting blasted, blasted by, the, by Paul, who would ultimately become the, uh, by Saul, who would ultimately become the Apostle Paul, and that council. They're going after every Jew that has turned their allegiance from Judaism to the cross of Jesus Christ. And they're seeking to throw them into prison, and they're persecuting them and causing them all kind of havoc. But what I find so unbelievable is that when they are scattered abroad, according to verse 4, the Bible says that they went everywhere preaching the word. I don't know about you. Might have been pretty easy just to shut my mouth, slip off into some other part of the country and Start my life over again where my family and myself could be protected and cared for and safe. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe their faith was real? You, you believe their faith was real? How real? Scale one to ten. How real? I don't know about you, but it seems like to me, kind of lean toward that 10 mark. Now I have a few questions for you this evening. Is your faith real? Is your faith real? Question. Is your faith real enough to strive for? You say, what do you mean strive for? You know, spend time and energy to grow. Is it real enough to invest your time, your energy into growing in your spiritual life? Is it that real to you? Is it real enough to pick up your Bible daily? Is it real enough to read your Bible? Is it real enough to study your Bible? Is it real enough to memorize your Bible? Is it real enough to to do those things that God's called us to do? Is it real enough to strive for? Scale 1 to 10, how real is your faith? Study to shew thyself approved unto God. By the way, you don't need to study your Bible for me. You don't need to memorize your Bible for your Sunday school teacher. You don't need to read it. You don't need to meditate on it for your wife or husband. The Bible says, study to shew thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Is your faith real enough to strive for? Number two, is your faith real enough to stand for? Is it real enough to stand for? I mean, we think about those three Hebrew children. We think about Daniel and the lion's den. We think about the early Christians that were being persecuted and ultimately spread out throughout the region, and yet they continued to preach the gospel in spite of the fact that people were vehemently seeking to destroy them. They stood. You know, we're admonished to stand as well. 
In the book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, the apostle says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. He's telling the church at Philippi, he's saying, you stand fast. I'm telling you, if there's one thing, my joy and my crown, if there's one thing I'm going to receive in heaven one day, it's going to be you. You're my crown. I've invested my life in you. I've given myself to your soul salvation. I've surrendered myself to the work of Jesus Christ. You're going to be my crown one day. You stand. You stand. No matter what, stand. He admonishes them to stand. And may I say, we're being admonished to stand. See, it's not only admonished, but it's expected. In the book of Ephesians, take take your Bible, look at chapter 6, verse 11. We are expected to stand. Boy, we live in a day of self-preservation. We live in a day where personal comfort trumps all things. Where we got to be, things have to be convenient, they have to be easy, they have to be comfortable. And if that's the case, then we're all in. But may I say, standing isn't always easy. At least not for Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. My friend, it is not a battle against even just the fleshly things of the world. We're in a spiritual warfare that's taking place. Everywhere around us, on every corner, there's a demonic uh, presence. There's something there seeking to devour us. My friend, do not lose sight of the fact you are in a war today. You're either going to stand or you're going to fold. Wherefore, take... Unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to go, be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. I wonder, is your faith real enough to stand for? Real enough when someone questions your faith, someone tells you to sit down and be quiet. Someone tells you they're tired of your truths. There's someone tells you, it's, it's, I'm, I'm tired of listening to the gospel. I listen, can't you just fit in? Can't you just be more tolerant? Can't you just kind of roll with the punches? Can't you be more like the rest of us? You're going to stand or you're going to sit? I wonder, is your faith real enough to stand for? How real? Is it real enough to strive for, real enough to stand for? How about this? Is your faith real enough to sacrifice for? To sacrifice for? Look, if you would, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. If you were in Sunday school today, you uh, already were taught all these things. So I'm going to share it with you just again and remind you. I think this is... Amazing. I I like the material in our Sunday school classes. I love it being taught. I love the principles. I love the, the, the foundational truths we're learning in the book of Galatians. Notice in chapter 4, verse 19, I want you to note the, the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church at Galatia. He says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again unto Christ until Christ be formed in you. Now, We know the background because of Sunday school. And if you've not been in Sunday school, I'm not going to take the time to go through all of it. But the bottom line is this. 
is that the Apostle Paul, the Bible teaches us, travailed in birth. He tra- as a woman that's going through a birthing, the Apostle Paul sacrificed in order to get the gospel to, the church, to churches in Galatia. He, he went, even though he had more than likely a physical ailment, and it appears it could have been something to do with his eyes, he still went to those churches. He went into that area. It's possible that because of his ailment, he ended up there in, in the first place. But he, we find him there. And now here he is, sacrificing. Here he is, striving to see them come to Jesus Christ. It's as though there's a woman giving birth, and he's in pain, and he's suffering in order to get them the gospel. And they are birthed into Jesus Christ. But sadly, the Judaizers come along. And as we learned in our lessons on Sunday morning, we learned that they took those Christians that were there and they began to to corrupt them and they began to give them false teaching and telling them that they had to maintain and keep the law, the very law that they had been delivered from. The very law, should I say, that the Jews had been delivered from. What was it that these Galatians, many of them were delivered from? Those that were Gentiles were delivered from paganism. They were under the bondage and enslavement of paganism. And they were delivered by grace into this wonderful faith, into the joy of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, these Judaizers have come along now. And whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, they've told you that trusting Christ is not enough. You have to be living the law as well. You have to keep the holy days and observe all the sacrifices. And you've got to be part of that, in a sense, following the law in order to continue to find God's favor and to continue to be saved. And they started buying into this. And Paul goes back to them now in chapter 4, verse 19. And he says to them again, he says, My little children, I know you're not happy with the message I've given you. I don't know why, because I tell you the truth and I become your enemy, he says. But the fact is, is whether or not you see me as an enemy, whether or not you like the message that I'm giving you, whether or not you appreciate what I'm trying to do, the fact is today is that I love you and I care for you and I want to deliver you again. And he goes on to say this in chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, excuse me, he says, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until, the, until Christ be formed in you. He says, I'm going to continue to strive. I'm going to continue to go through this agony. I'm going to continue to go through this pain. Why? Because I want to see you delivered out of this false teaching. And I want to see you delivered into the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the liberty that is yours now in him. Can I tell you, if you haven't figured it out yet, true service is sacrifice. If you haven't had to sacrifice to do your service, my friend, you haven't started serving yet. If it's always been easy and it hasn't required some discomfort, if it hasn't required you to have to go places you didn't want to go, so to speak, to go to the next level, to get out of your comfort zone, if you didn't have to find yourself you know, dealing with situations and circumstances at times that you were uncomfortable, if, if you found yourself being, uh, never being inconvenienced, my friend, you don't even know what service is yet. I mean, if it's been that easy, if there's no sacrifice, then there's no service. 
Is your faith real enough to sacrifice for? Scale one to ten, I wonder where does it land? How real is your faith tonight? Let's think about those three Hebrew children. Let's think about Daniel. Let's think about those early Christians. Then let's think about us. Let me take a moment to think about me. You take a moment and think about you. And let's ask the question. How real is my faith? Father, we come to you. We ask you, Lord, to help us to be honest with ourselves tonight in these next moments. And Father, our faith ought to be moving us to respond in ways. It ought to cause us to strive to grow. It ought to cause us to stand. It ought to cause us to sacrifice. If our faith is so real, then, then it ought to produce these kind of responses the same way it did in those Old Testament saints and those early New Testament saints. Well, God, help us to truly be honest with ourselves and answer that question, how real is our faith? And Lord, may we even put it on a scale of 1 to 10. And Lord, if we're not leaning toward the 10... May we be honest enough to admit that, confess it, and then take steps to grow in our relationship with you and in our faith that it might be more real to us than ever. We'll thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.